Well, friends, I want you to imagine that you found yourselves in a 20-foot-long fishing boat, adrift in the middle of the ocean, all alone, tossed by the waves, surrounded by sharks, the sun beating down on you, no land in sight. This is the story that took place 10 years ago, uh, a true story of a Mexican fisherman named Salvador Alvarenga. I've been reading this incredible book recently. It's titled 438 Days. Outside Magazine called it the best survival book in a decade. It's the true story of Salvador Alvarenga, who is the longest known survivor adrift and alone in the Pacific Ocean that that we know of in recorded human history. He survived 438 days in a 20-foot-long fishing boat. He and his partner had set off from the coast of Mexico as as commercial fishermen and in their small fishing boat they encountered a storm and in the midst of this storm they were carried out to sea further than they had ever been before. They found themselves trapped in the ocean currents, their engine became flooded, they had no way to radio land for help, they were lost, they were adrift, they were alone. Salvador's partner made it about 100 days before he succumbed to the the brutal elements and the heat and the starvation. And and then for the remainder, for the next year, Salvador Alvarenga found himself drifting 6,000 miles from the coast of Mexico all the way to the Marshall Islands in the South Pacific where he was miraculously washed ashore and eventually rescued. It's an incredible survival tale, uh, a fascinating story. And as I've been reading this story, I've thought to myself so often how this story parallels the biblical account of our human condition. You know, friends, the, the Bible says that just like Salvador Alvarenga and his physical battle in the middle of the ocean, we too find ourselves adrift. Adrift without hope, lost in a sea of sin, unable to save ourselves, constantly plagued by temptation, longing for for something more, desperate for rescue. And it was into this desperate condition that God in his amazing grace and love for us sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to provide our means of rescue. And friends, this is what Palm Sunday and and this beginning of Passion Week that we're going to celebrate this week, this is what this is all about. It's about God's rescue plan for men and women who are lost and adrift without hope, separated him from our by our sins, without any recourse to save ourselves, and yet God in his amazing love for us was not content to leave us stuck in these these dire straits. We saw earlier in our series in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, John shares about God's rescue plan of salvation for the world. He, He tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God's rescue plan is Jesus, and and we need to put our trust in Jesus. 
This morning, we're going to begin a pickup of our year-long series in the Gospel of John. We've just come off this six-week hiatus as we've looked at these various apologetic issues. And, And now as we return to the Gospel of John, we're going to focus once again on the message of this incredible rescue plan of salvation that God initiated for our sake. The Gospel of John, if you'll recall, is the Apostle John's personal eyewitness testament to the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. It's a testament that can rightly be understood as God's rescue plan for humanity. And it's this reason that it's referred to as a gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. And so when we talk about the gospel of John, what we're talking about is the good news. The good news of God's rescue plan of salvation for men and women who are lost in their sins adrift without hope and any means of saving ourselves. And so God sent a Savior for us. This morning, as we return to our series in the Gospel of John, we're going to pick up our series in John chapter 11. And interestingly, our passage this morning centers around a man named Lazarus. And the name Lazarus, friends, literally means God is my help. Did you know that about Lazarus? His name literally means God is my help. And what better person for the Lord to use to display the reality of his amazing grace and love for us, of his rescue plan of salvation for us than a man named Lazarus, a man named God is my help. Friends, let me ask you a question this morning. Do you know God is your source of help today? You can You can if you'll simply look to Jesus Christ. He wants to be your help too. And this morning as we look at this amazing reality that God offers us his help, we're going to see this truth in three powerful ways in this story of Lazarus this morning. We're in John chapter 11. We're in verses 1 through 44 today. I want to read the story for us and then I want to come back and share with you today three ways that we discover God is my help in this incredible passage. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bibles. We have some Bibles under the chairs in front of you. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not on him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. 
Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, and Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out with his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What an incredible, incredible story. Here in John chapter 11, we encounter what is the sixth sign. The sixth sign in the Gospel of John. Friends, you might remember the significance of the signs in the Gospel of John. Remember, for John, he uses the term sign rather than miracle. And John refers to signs because signs are more than just simply raw displays of Christ's power. Signs for John are miracles with a message. Signs were were miracles performed by Jesus that had a deeper message, a deeper truth behind them. And here 
in this sixth sign of Jesus, this miraculous work of raising Lazarus from the dead, we find an incredible message. The message that God is my help. God is my help. We discover God is my help in three ways in our passage this morning. Number one, we see that God is my help through the sister's plan and the Lord's providence. The sister's plan and the Lord's providence. You know, as we look at the opening verses in our passage this morning, I can't help but think just how many of us can relate to the opening scene here in our passage this morning. Here is Mary and Martha, sisters of Lazarus, and and they love their brother, and their brother is sick, and so Mary and Martha do what is so natural to any of us as believers in Jesus, right? Mary and Martha loved Jesus. Lazarus loved Jesus. They had a a close relationship with Jesus, and, and knowing who Jesus was, trusting in Jesus, they do what comes natural to any believer. They send for Jesus, they, they cry out for Jesus' help. They ask Jesus, Lord, come quickly. The one whom you love, Lazarus, is sick. How common is it for us, friends, to, to call out to the Lord in our times of need? How, how common is it to, to cry out to Jesus when we find ourselves in times of trial and tribulation and heartache? Many of you in this room know that reality of of crying out to Jesus for help. Maybe it was when a a spouse was diagnosed with cancer. Or maybe you have a, a loved one in your life right now who is struggling with depression. Maybe you are a a young couple here this morning and you've been struggling to conceive a child. Maybe you've been out of work for a long season and struggling to find a job. And and in all of these situations, we cry out to the Lord, Jesus, come, help me. Jesus, we need you. The, The one you love, Jesus, needs you. How many times have we, like Martha and Mary, sent for Jesus? How many times have we waited, wondering if God has heard our pleas? Wondering if he'll show up. And yet our passage this morning reminds us that in the midst of these difficult seasons, God is always faithful. It's very interesting the response to the message that Jesus receives from the sisters. Jesus shares two very interesting responses. In verse 4, we first see how Jesus reminds us that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over this whole situation. He was sovereign over Lazarus' illness. He was sovereign over Lazarus' eventual death. And in all of these things, Jesus tells us that God had a plan. In verse 4, Jesus, when he heard the message from the sisters, he says to his disciples, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You see, friends, God had a plan. God had a purpose, even in Lazarus' sickness, even in Lazarus' death. And the purpose was ultimately to bring God glory. And then Jesus reveals to us not only that, but in verses 5 and 6, we read this incredible response. Verse 5 tells us, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
Now, when we read that verse, we would think, well, wow. I mean, Jesus loved this family. Obviously, he's going to go. He's going to run. He's going he's to go right away to Bethany because he loves them. But in verse 6, John tells us, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Two days longer in the place where he was. See, John reveals that even in God's love for us, even in Jesus' love for his people, sometimes, sometimes he allows us to wait. Sometimes he allows us to, to go through the trials of life. And John tells us that he did this in his love for this family. In his love for this family, he waited. He waited. I've picked up a, a new hobby recently. <clears throat> I've shared some stories this past year or two how I've gotten into tennis. My daughter plays tennis for Chisago Lakes, and one of my newest hobbies that I've gotten into is stringing tennis rackets. You know, when you play a lot of tennis, you end up wearing down your strings quickly, and your tension disappears quickly, and so you need to have your racket restrung regularly so that you can continue to perform at the level you desire to perform at with your racket. Well, what happens is when you go to restring your racket at a professional place, you end up paying 20 to 30 bucks every time you need your racket restrung. Well, that ends up uh, adding up after a time, right? I mean, if you're doing this every two weeks or every month, pretty soon you start spending a lot of money stringing these rackets. So a few months ago, I decided I'm going to start looking into getting into stringing tennis rackets. So I purchased some equipment, I purchased a tennis racket stringer, and, and I watched a bunch of YouTube videos, I talked to some friends, and I learned how to string a racket. It's very interesting when you string a tennis racket, the process you go through. The very first thing you do is you take a clippers, and you start cutting away the strings on the racket. And you start pulling the strings off the racket frame one by one. And then you take your racket and you mount it down on the racket stringer. And you tighten the clamp so that the, the racket is securely held in place. And then there's a drop weight mechanism. And you thread the strings through the racket frame. And then you wrap them around this drop weight mechanism. And the drop weight mechanism creates tension on that string. And the string pulls taut. And when the string is pulled taut, you take a clamp. And then you clamp the string in place so the tension holds. And you repeat this process over and over again as you weave around the racket, eventually tying off your knots. I was stringing this racket just yesterday. And as I was stringing this racket and I was thinking about the story of Lazarus and I was thinking about the reality of God's providence and how sometimes in God's love for us, he, he allows us to wait for his response. And, and I was thinking how often our lives are just like these tennis rackets in the process of getting strong. You know, sometimes God takes the clippers to our lives and he starts cutting away pieces of our lives and starts pulling off the strings and in those times we wonder, Lord, what are you doing to me? This hurts, Jesus. Other times God takes us and he lays us down on the, the rack of his providential love and plan for our lives and he turns the screws and we say, Lord, this hurts. And then God begins to weave his master plan, his perfect will for our lives through the frame of our life. 
Sometimes he, he pulls the tension and it stretches us and we say, Lord, what are you doing to me? God, this hurts. And you know, friends, so often we only feel the cut of the clippers. We only feel the tension of God pulling and stretching us. But if we could understand God's will and plan from his vantage point, we would see that in all of this, God was working his perfect will and plan for our lives. His perfect will and plan that ultimately brings him the greatest glory and us his greatest good for our lives. Even when we don't understand it in the moment. You know, friends, when we find ourselves in the midst of the trials of life, we need to remember that, that God is sovereign. He is always faithful, and we can trust his providential plans for our lives. We, we, we need to hold on to the, the promises of Scripture, promises like Romans eight twenty eight, which tells us that in all things, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We need to remember passages like James 1, 2 through 4, where, where James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God has a plan even in the trials he allows into our lives. We need to remember passages like Philippians 4.19 where the Apostle Paul tells us, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Friends, do you believe that? Do you remember that Paul wrote those words as he was sitting in a prison cell in Rome? Confident that my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. See, friends, when you find yourselves in those seasons of life where God seems silent and your prayers appear to go unanswered and you wonder if the Lord truly cares, remember, God is my help. God is my help. And as with Martha and Mary, in his love for us, sometimes the Lord delays his response to us. But even in those seasons of delay, we can trust that God's timing is always right and his plans are always good and he is always faithful. Trust in him, friends. The second way that we discover God is my help in our passage this morning, we see this truth in the sister's pain and the Lord's promises. In verses 17 to 37 of our passage, we find two revolutionary promises from the Lord in response to the pain and confusion of Lazarus' sisters. And, and friends, I don't use that term revolutionary lightly, but to truly convey just how incredible these promises are in the scope of history. And in light of all the claims of the various religions of the world, Friends, understand there's never been another in all of history like Jesus. There's never been another to make promises like those of our Lord. What are the promises we find here in the midst of the sisters' pain and their heartache over their brother having passed away and their questioning and confusioning of, Lord, why didn't you come? And here Jesus offers two incredible promises. 
Number one, he offers the promise of his resurrection life. Verses 25 and 26, Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus asked, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus says here, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, friends, please understand, Jesus isn't saying here that he will give to us resurrection and life. That's not what he says. He says that as the author and giver and sustainer of life, he is the resurrection and the life. And so as we live in faith, and as we trust in him by faith, and we experience these realities, they're all found in him. We experience resurrection and life as we unite our lives to Jesus. Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus is the life. This is why, friends, knowing Jesus is so essential. Because without Jesus, there is no hope. There's no hope for resurrection. There's no hope for life because he is the resurrection and the life. This is why the passage we read earlier, John 3, 16 through 18, is so important for us to understand. God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus is the life. If you don't know Jesus, you don't have this hope. 16 years ago, my wife and I had an incredible experience. I was invited to teach at a seminary in Ukraine for a month. This was our first year of marriage, one of our first adventures together. We went to the former Soviet country of Ukraine. Ukraine, at the turn of the 21st century, was a nation that was still living through the ravages of having recently come out of the system of communist oppression that they had lived under for decades and decades. It was a very interesting experience traveling through Ukraine and walking the streets of Ukraine and visiting with the people there. It was a very dark country, a very depressing and despairing country. There was like this overt oppression all over when we walked around the streets. Everything was gray. The, the, the buildings were gray. The, the people's clothing was gray. Even the food was gray. And, and, and when we talked with people, the, there was just a, a sense of despair, a sense of hopelessness. I, I asked one of the, the teachers there at the seminary who was an American and who was showing us around the city one afternoon, I asked him, Why? Where does this oppression, this despair come from? I'll never forget his response. He, he said to me, Jason, have you ever seen what communism does to a nation or a people? He described as after coming out of decades and decades of living under the atheistic communism of the Soviet Union, a, a system which says there is no God, there is no ultimate meaning and purpose in life. You are simply a cog in the machine of the state. And there is no hope beyond the grave. After living under this worldview for decades and decades, this produces a deep despair in the hearts of men and women. I thought how different 
from the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And it was amazing, friends, as we traveled through Ukraine, the difference in the outlook between those who knew Jesus and those who did not have the hope of Jesus. Those who knew the truths of the promises that he is the resurrection and the life versus those who had no hope. You see, we have an incredible hope in Jesus. As the resurrection, friends, he is our hope for tomorrow. As the life, he is our promise for today. Knowing Jesus, it makes all the difference. The, the, the second promise here then that Jesus offers in verses 33 and 38 through 38, he, he offers us the promise of his loving presence. You know, it's really interesting, one of the most powerful realities of our passage this morning is that Jesus offers Martha and Mary something far more than just a theology lesson. He offers them his loving presence. And you know, friends, in this, we do get a theology lesson. We get an incredible picture of who our God is. Our God who cares for his people and shows compassion for his people and weeps with his people in the midst of their pain. It's very interesting in verses 33 through 38, we, we have four accounts of Jesus' emotions here in this, this passage. John shares how Jesus was deeply moved, how, how he was moved with compassion, how he wept. John eleven thirty five. every junior high boy's favorite Bible verse, Jesus wept. We read in verse 36 of his love for Lazarus and Martha and Mary. We read again in verse 38 how he is deeply moved. We see this incredible picture of Jesus' emotions on display here, friends. Do you realize just how incredible this picture is? Here is God in the flesh, moved with compassion, joining in the sorrow and grief of his people. Friends, do you realize how very different this is from all the other gods this world has ever known? The gods of ancient Greece and Rome who were distant and fickle and self-centered and capricious. The the Brahmin Atman of Hinduism. The the god of Hinduism who is simply an impersonal universal force. The goal of which is to merge yourself and become one with the impersonal nothing. Buddha. Buddha, who taught men and women are to be islands unto themselves. You are not to interfere with another person's suffering, Buddha said, because they are suffering in this life as a result of their bad karma from a previous life, and now they must purge themselves of their bad karma through their suffering in this life. The religion of Islam and and the God Allah, who is so supreme, so transcendent, so great that he is unmoved, by anything in creation. And then, friends, we have Jesus, Amen. who is deeply moved by the suffering of his people, who weeps with us in our pain, who, who offers us his very presence in the midst of our trials and heartache. Wow. What a God we have. What a Savior. What a Lord. Two weeks ago, I had the very difficult but special privilege of preaching for the funeral service of a young lady, Hannah Hoyland, 19-year-old lady who left this world far too soon in our eyes. The Hoyland family are dear friends of mine, and 
at that funeral service, I shared with them from Psalm 23, where King David tells us that the Lord is my shepherd. King David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Friends, do you know that it's possible to fear no evil, even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death? See, in that message that day, I shared with my friends, the Hoylands, that the reality is you can't have a shadow without light. And the darker the shadow, the brighter the light. And the reason why a Christian can have hope even in the midst of the darkness of the valley of the shadow of death is because we know that the light behind the shadow is our faithful good shepherd. The one who comes and enters into our valleys with us. The one who loves us and weeps with us and shows compassion to us even in the midst of the darkness and the deepness of the valleys. What great promises, friends, we have in Jesus. What great hope we have. Thirdly, this morning, we discover God is my help through the sister's puzzlement and the Lord's proof. In verse 25, Jesus has just called himself the resurrection and the life. But friends, as we all know, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Words without action don't count for much. And so here in verses 38 through 44, in this sixth sign of John's gospel, Jesus doesn't just talk. Jesus verifies his claims to be the resurrection and the life by miraculously commanding Lazarus to come out of the grave. Now, friends, I want you to remember the context here. Lazarus has been dead already for four days. And so naturally, we see in our passage, Martha is puzzled when Jesus commands the crowd to remove the stone from the tomb's entrance. Martha says, Lord, he's been dead for four days. I mean, there's going to be a bad odor. I mean, decomposition has already set in. They didn't have modern-day embalming techniques. I mean, they would take the body, and they would bury it, and they would seal it. And you don't want to open that thing up again for a long, long time. And so the sisters are naturally puzzled. This was no swoon story, friends. A swoon story is when somebody is mistakenly declared dead and buried, but they're really just sleeping, and then they become resuscitated. This wasn't that kind of a situation. Lazarus had been dead for four days. And so in raising Lazarus here, Jesus was demonstrating conclusively the reality of who he was to all who were present there. As I was reading this account of John's testament of Lazarus, it reminded me of what John tells us in the beginning of his letter that we know as 1 John. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-3, through 3, John says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. I can't help but think John might have had the story of Lazarus in mind as he was penning these words. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. See, friends, at the end of the day, this sixth sign we've looked at this morning is really as much about faith arising as it is Lazarus rising. You see, John has shared this testimony with us so that each one of us here this morning might consider the claims and promises of Jesus for ourselves. In raising Lazarus, the the man named God is my help, Jesus holds out that same promise to you too. He wants to be your help as well. He wants you to know the true life that was made manifest in him. The true life which he offers to each and every one of us. And so this morning, friends, just as Jesus called Lazarus to rise, he calls out to you as well. Let faith arise. Look to me. Hope in me. Trust in me. Find your help in me. Let faith arise. Will you trust him, friends? Will you look to the God who is our help? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much this morning for this powerful testament to who you are. The God who came into this world to be our rescue, our salvation. The God who is the resurrection and the life. The God who comforts us in our heartache and pain. The God who promises that even in our trials, you have a plan and purpose for our good and for your glory. Lord, you promised to be our help when we turn to you. And so I just pray this morning that even here today, you might inspire us by your Holy Spirit to look to you. That like Lazarus arose from the grave, that our faith might arise today in new and powerful ways as we look to the God who is our help. And that we would find you faithful in our times of need. Jesus, we just thank you for all of the promises that are ours in you. We pray this in your great name. Amen.